you brought your Bible today, would you open it up to 1 Samuel? If you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to know that we would love for you to take one home with you today. They're on the back table on your way out. Please feel free to take one. Everyone has a story, and today we're going to read a portion of Hannah's story. However, I want to be clear about something before we begin, and that is that everyone's story is a part of God's story. Try to keep that in mind as we read. Keep in mind that God is kingdom-minded. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He's got the whole kingdom in mind from beginning to end. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerhom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forgive your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking beer or wine. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord. And then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him. And present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. 
Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her young, with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. As we read this, this story, there are some things that stand out to me. We could go in a number of directions uh, with, with this passage. But there are some things that stand out to me that I call Hannah's life markers. Markers are significant moments, events that shape us, leave marks on us, and on who we become. Some markers that stand out to me in this story are Hannah has a bully who ridicules her. And Hannah is in a season of grief and anguish because she cannot have a child. I see Hannah's prayer life and her lenience upon God. The marker of Hannah's vulnerability at the house of the Lord, Hannah's vow to give her son to the Lord if she's given a child, and then later Hannah completing her vow giving her son over to Eli to raise in the house of the Lord. Wow. Those are some significant markers, significant moments that shaped Hannah. Today I want to point out three important facts. Number one, God knew and loved Hannah. God was faithful. And Hannah's story is a part of God's story. Today, I'm going to share with you some of my own markers out of my life story. And by sharing these with you, I'm in no way saying that my story is more special or more important than any other person's, because it's not. I do believe it's important for us to share our stories with one another, though, for the sole purpose of pointing each other to God's story. Our stories are unique. Here's a little bit of mine. I got my first real six string Boy, at the five and done Played it to my This part right here, sing it with me Was the summer of 69 That's right, it was the summer of 69 It's July 15th, 1969 And I was born Born to Richard and Donna Dixon Who loved Jesus And raised me to do the same I also stormed into the life of my older sister, Becky, who was my best friend. We lived out in the country on 30 acres, and we did everything together, including building forts, carving our own snowmobile paths through the woods, weeding the garden, swimming in the lake. We did everything together. Age five, in a back room at Bible Baptist Church, I prayed a prayer with my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Whitcomb, and invited Jesus in to come into my heart. Age five was also the year that my parents started me in music lessons. My fingers were too small for the piano, so my mom started me in accordion. And let me tell you, I can really put it down, people. (laughs) 
sometime Mary and I will both stand up here and we will just, we'll go crazy on our accordions. Later, I took piano, voice, guitar, and a very brief try at the saxophone. (laughs) I stayed in voice and accordion and piano all the way through from five years old until I graduated from high school. As my life unfolded, little did I know what the gift and the knowledge of music, how it would minister to me by God in times of joy and pain. Fast forward to age 16. Let's just get over. um, I'm going to talk about a couple of things, and then a picture is going to come up of me, and it's really bad, just so you know. But um, uh, seriously, age 16 was really tough. My grandma died of liver disease at the young age of 65, and I was devastated. And I was worried about my grandfather. And then a few months after that, I had a really good friend. His name was Wayne. And none of us knew that Wayne was really struggling with depression, and Wayne took his own life. He was only 17 years old. Short months after that, my music teacher from the time I was five years old, his name was John, who I had been very close to, died after a long battle with lung cancer. And to top it all off, my sister, 18 years old, moved away to New Mexico to live with my granddad and take over our family apple orchard. My 16th year felt like one blow after another, and it would be over the next several years that I would begin to see God working in it. At the time, I was confused about God, about his control over things, and I had a lot of unanswered questions. Age 19, yeah, that's that horrible picture. Age 19, you got to remember it's the 80s. Second year at Northwestern College. Earning my bachelor's degrees in biblical studies and elementary education, and Joel, a hot young freshman, (laughs) arrives on campus. Huge life marker. Ring by spring, we are engaged a year later. Age 21, Joel breaks off our engagement and takes my ring back. He says the words, I don't love you. I am heartbroken. I was convinced beyond a doubt that Joel was the man God had for me to spend the rest of my life with. He was the one. What is this? I'm confused, and for weeks I cannot stop crying. In steps my mom and my roommates. I don't know what I would have done without those godsends. Looking back now, it's clear to recognize that Joel and I were so so young. Did you catch the age? 21. We were so young. And Joel was scared, people. Can you blame him? (laughs) Age 22, Joel comes too. (laughs) Forgiveness, understanding, reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus. Proposal number two, wedding date set. Age 22, still age 22, pregnant. Not married yet. Wrong order. We stand there holding the pregnancy test in hand, clinging to each other with tears of joy and laughter, and then fear. Wrong order. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Telling our parents, losing my first teaching job in a Christian school were very painful. But what God brought us through his forgiveness 
and through our repentance was joy. December 22nd, 1991, our wedding. June 11th, baby Kelsey. Beautiful, perfect, my joy, my daughter. Not going to cry. Age 24. Age 24 on April 24th, 1994 at 11.24 a.m. Kylie is born. Beautiful, perfect, my joy, my daughter. Fast forward four weeks later. I am exhausted. Joel's away on a business trip to Seattle. I'm by myself in the cities. I decide to drive up to my parents' house to get help. (laughs) They live in Duluth. I fall asleep driving two miles from my parents' house at 55 miles an hour, both babies in their car seats, one in the front seat, one in the back. The car rolls three times as I over-exaggerate to miss a mailbox and lands upside down in someone's driveway. Miraculously, my babies are glistening in powdered glass with not a scratch on them. The owner of the driveway was lying awake, praying in his bed when he heard the horrific sound of metal crunching into pavement. By the time the first driver by reached my car, I'm told I had one baby out of the car and was working on the other baby, all with one arm, since my left wrist was so badly and openly fractured. The ambulance comes, and I'm rushed into surgery to save my wrist and hand, and the surgeon tells me, going in, that he's not sure if I'll have any function in my hand, but we'll see. The surgery is successful. It's all pinned together. Thank you, God. For the next months, my mom takes over as the caregiver to myself and my kids so that Joel can continue working and I can begin physical therapy to learn to use my hand again. Family and friends step in big time to help us. God is so good. Age 27, five-year wedding anniversary. Married young, broke, kids right away, full speed ahead. Joel and I stare across the dinner table at one another and admit that neither one of us want to continue being married. We are sick and tired of each other. But no one's leaving, so what are we going to do? We press into God, and we press into the vows that we made to him, and we keep going. And 21 years later, we are both so glad that we did. Thank you. (laughs) Age 29, Kelsey at the age of seven, develops chronic health problems which continue to worsen steadily over the next 14 years as we exhaust efforts with the Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota. Starts with digestive issues then leads to leg and foot pain, which leads to paralysis and so much more pain. Pain from this unknown disease and pain from all the excruciating tests that are being done on her. Finally, at 17 years of age, A diagnosis. Scleroderma. An autoimmune disease with no cure. Bitter tears from this mom. Watching this beautiful girl deteriorate before my eyes. And there's nothing I can do. I keep a brave front in front of my daughter. But I fall into bed night after night and weep tears of despair that cry out imploring God to help us, help her. Heal her. And praying that Kelsey will not feel abandoned by God. 
What follows are 14 years of ceaseless and persistent prayers and support by family and friends. Enter Laura. God brings friends at the perfect time. Friends like Leslie Goley, friends like Di Blagman, friends like Julie Arendt, who hold you up. Kelsey emerges from this disease with a royalty, a royalty-like dignity and a strength that can only come from God. Age 36, anxiety attacks and depression come upon me out of the blue. I make no connection as to why. It's too dark. What's wrong with me? It's like I'm frozen inside, watching everything happen all around me, but I can't join in. I can't feel. I can't cope. I just feel hopeless. God, where are you? Why won't you speak? Why are you so silent? I meet Jackie. Thank you, Laura. A woman of God with the gift of counseling who helps me walk back into the light. One small step at a time. Praise Jesus for godly counselors who are trained to help us get to a place where we can hear his voice again. 2010, Kylie turns 16 and embarks on the hardest and most transformational year of her life. I watch my baby girl become spiritually transformed before my eyes. I am like dripping at the nose. I'm so sorry putting off her old self and putting on her new self in Christ once and for all. And what a gift as a mom to be able to see. So proud and grateful for you, Chris. (laughs) So proud and grateful to God for this woman of God that I get to call my daughter. I couldn't have known when I was 16 and when I was struggling in my faith and in the events that were happening around me, that I would one day have a 16-year-old walk through something so difficult and a 17-year-old walk through illness. But I drew on, on that 16th year of mine to be a good parent to my daughters when they were at that age. June 26, um, 2011, the Las Conscious wildfires hit New Mexico the largest wildfire in New Mexico history. Its casualties included my family's apple orchard, one that we had had in our family for 70 years, begun by my grandfather and given over to my sister. My sister and her husband and children lived there, worked there, played there. Their entire livelihood was swept up in a matter of minutes, with my brother-in-law barely escaping, his truck racing out of the orchard with sparks hitting the hood as he outran the fire. They were left homeless, jobless, and feeling quite hopeless. We were all left stunned, devastated, and not understanding. 2012, Emmanuel Covenant Church. Yep, you are one of my life markers. I'm called into a job that the Lord told me 20 years ago he would bring me to. I'm so thankful. Plus, I watched that firstborn baby of mine walk down the aisle in her daddy's arms. And I gain a son who I began praying for when he was three years old. Brandon. 
Our lives are so much richer with him. Plus, Kylie moves out and goes to college, and Joel and I are alone. Woohoo! <laughs> Empty nesters. In January of 2013, just a few months ago, after living with the diagnosis of scleroderma for seven years, Kelsey goes in for a retesting of her autoimmune disease. This happens because over the last year, Kelsey has noticed significant improvement in her symptoms and wonders if things have changed. The test comes back clear. The doctor says, this doesn't happen. Oh, yes, it does. The disease is undetectable. There is no scleroderma. God has healed her. Hallelujah. Joel and I find ourselves giving thanks for his healing power. So there you go. I've shared with you some of my life markers. And I want to toss it back at you. What about you? What's your story? What are some of your markers? In your sermon notes, there is a very small, and you're not going to fit them all, there's a small open area. And we're just going to take a minute, and I'm going to ask you to just jot down some of your life markers that come to mind from your story. Go ahead and take a minute and do that. Now, I know you didn't have time to write them all down, unless you're three years old. Maybe. <laughs> but I just want you to look over the ones that you did think of or wrote down. Just reflect on those for a moment. Look at them. Your markers. My markers. Some clearly ordained by God. But others 
that seem to be easily tied to the fall. What I mean by that is that we live in a fallen world, and there are some things that happen that are just unknown, a mystery. Some of our markers are explainable while others remain unexplainable. Some are really good, while others very difficult and heart-wrenching. In all of them, can we look at them and say, God knows me and loves me. God is faithful. My story is a part of God's story. Can you look back and see in retrospect a God knowing you and loving you? Perhaps through the people that surrounded you and supported you. Think of Eli in our story, who listened to the Lord and blessed Hannah in her grief. And she was able to leave with her face no longer downcast, even though she didn't have a solution yet. As you reflect back on your life markers, ask yourself over each one, when these markers occurred in my life, did I operate in the knowledge and fullness of God's love? Did I relinquish my control over to God? Did I trust in God's faithfulness? Relinquishing control is an act of trust, is it not? In all honesty, I have to say that when I look back, my answer to that question about relinquishing control and trusting is sometimes. Sometimes things were so far out of my control, I had no choice but to cling to God. Other times... I clung to people while they clung to God for me. (laughs) And then there were other times I just held on to my own strength with all of my might, not giving up control, afraid. Your story is part of God's story. As you reflect back on your life markers and as you walk forward with more life markers in front of you, remember you are not a robot You are a human being created in the image of God. And from the time you were formed in your mother's womb, you were given responsibility. We all were. Responsibility to make choices. We are or will be held accountable for those choices. Because God's love is perfect love, is sovereign and always wins, God uses all all of our life markers, including the ones that aren't in his perfect plan, including the ones where we are affected, like Hannah was, by another person's choices, including the markers that just fall into the category of mystery. We walk in a world, you guys, that God has not yet taken hold of. There is still sin. There is sickness. There are bad choices that hurt us. You will walk out of here this morning. I will walk out of here this morning. And your life markers will continue. I want to encourage you in the following discipline for the next week. See if it makes a difference in your awareness of God's presence in your life each day. The first is this. Begin each day in prayer. Try these three simple statements. God, you know me and you love me. You are faithful. Show me your story today. 
Sometimes you have to speak it out loud, even if you're by yourself, because when you hear your voice speak it to God, it can take a new residence within your heart. And then end each day in prayer with these three simple things. God, help me rest in your love. Help me relinquish control. Help me to trust in you. Galatians 5, 15 and 16 says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, his Spirit dwells in you. You have the very Spirit of Jesus living, breathing, and directing inside of you. It is his Spirit inside of you that walks with you through your life markers, ever whispering, ever counseling, ever filling and sustaining you. God knows and loves you. God is faithful. Your story is It's a part of God's story. Your story is so important to tell. Another significant reason why we need to tell each other our stories here at Emmanuel Covenant Church. It's a great reason to join a small group. It's a great reason to go for prayer. It's a great reason to stick around and have a cup of coffee in the cafe. We need to tell each other our stories. We need to ask each other to tell our stories. I want us to um, notice that at the bottom of your sermon notes today, there are many verses. What is God's story? God's story is a beautiful story of perfect and faithful love that pulls us from the pit and redeems us by the blood of Jesus and saves us from an eternity of pain. And in the glorious end, God wins. Say that with me. God wins. In the glorious end, God wins. These verses at the bottom of your um, notes can help and assure you of God's love, God's sovereignty, and God's faithfulness. And I encourage you, as part of your challenge prayer time this week, to to use these verses to season that time of prayer with the Lord. Now, I want us to turn back in our Bibles to 1 Samuel, and this time we're going to look at um, chapter 2. Hannah has just weaned Samuel. (laughs) I'm thinking of when my kids were done nursing, or, or, you know, if you think of your kids being done taking a bottle, think of how little they were, and the emotion of just releasing that part of them. It's difficult, and here she is. She gives him up. She fulfills her vow to the Lord, Hannah does, that Samuel will minister to the Lord in his house. Can you imagine the difficulty? But do you know what? When I read 1 Samuel 2, I don't hear difficulty. Look at 1 Samuel 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, read that first sentence with me. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Horn means strength, you guys, in this passage. Strength. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. 
I love this next section because it's like she's kind of given it to Peninnah a little bit. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak, speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. She's kind of thanking God for bringing justice. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants and the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The last song that Kelsey led us in was a reason to sing, I need to know that you're still holding the whole world in your hands. That is a reason to sing. Folks, we don't have all the answers. There are so many unknowns, but God is holding the whole world in his hands. In the end, God wins. And that is a reason to sing. Last Sunday, well after my message was completed and written, Dwayne Runke came to me and said there was a poem included in his devotions that morning and that when he had read it, it that I came to his mind. And could he share it with me? So we sat down and he shared it with me. And I believe God put that on Dwayne's heart, not only to share with me, but to share with you this morning. Don't let the song go out of your life, although it sometimes will flow in a minor strain. It will blend again with the major tone you know. Although shadows rise to obscure life's skies and hide for a time the sun, the sooner they'll lift and reveal the rift if you let the melody run. Don't let the song go out of your life. Though the voice may have lost its trill, though the quivering note may die in your throat, let it sing in your spirit still. Don't let the song go out of your life. Let it ring in your soul while here. And when you go hence, it will follow you thence and live on in another sphere. At this time, I'm going to ask the the prayer team um, to go ahead and get into place. As we close this morning, I I have a song. Um, If you're a visitor here, I'm I'm the worship director here at ECC. So why wouldn't I close with a song? I mean, hello. But no, seriously, I have a song. Um, that I want to share with you guys today. And the name of the song is, is called He's Always Been Faithful. Uh, it's by Sarah Groves. This song first um, came to me, uh, the first time I actually heard it was just about a year and a half ago when, as I shared with you, my sister and her family lost everything in that fire. And there was a, um, this song came to me and I shared it with my sister and it really ministered to them in their time, and, and I want to really invite you to seal this time with the Lord by allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to you as you soak in the words of this song. 
If you are right now in a season where you just don't see God's faithfulness, that's okay. It doesn't change who he is. And it doesn't change his love and his faithfulness to you. I would encourage you to bring that pain to one of our team members and allow them to pray for you during this time or even after the service. 